0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes on Climate Change, the podcast from the front lines of Arctic research, based at the Arbosco Scientific Research Station in northern Sweden and produced in partnership with the Climate Impacts Research Centre. I'm Emma and in this episode I'm helping to set up some experiments which are aiming to simulate global warming. We're artificially turning up the heat to see how plant species and communities here might react to warmer seasonal temperatures and predict what might happen to our moving tree line. Today, I'll be chatting to Ellen Doropol, a senior lecturer at Umeå University, to find out more about how warming might impact the Arctic. But first, I'm starting this episode near the summit of a mountain, looking out over Lake Tornotrask. If you look carefully from here, you can just about see the research station on the opposite shore, because the field sites that we're working on today are located up on the mountains on the other side of the lake. I've joined Matthias, a technician for the CERT group here in Arbisco, and today we're setting up our artificial warming experiments. Okay, so today I have tried to do some field recordings, but it's actually super, super windy. Um, So I've had to hide myself in this little gully in the rocks, and hopefully this will turn out not too bad. So last night we crossed the lake um, over from Arbisco, we're on the other side now, um, and we camped out, and it was super windy then, so that was great for someone who gets a bit seasick uh, crossing that. But no problem, we're here. Um, And then this morning we've hiked up the mountains on this side of the valley, and we've been installing these little kind of greenhouses. They're made of kind of flexi-glass um, and they kind of have an open top and they have the effect of increasing the temperature by one to two degrees inside them which means that we can kind of create this window into the future here um, and we can have a look at what might happen to these plants that live up in this alpine environment um, should the world warm by one to two degrees as it is currently predicted to do. Now in some of the plots they've removed half of the moss species from half of the plot um, and that's also to try and and see how species react to an increase or a decrease in moss as part of the environment and they found that by planting some little shrubs in these plots too um, actually these species thrive and do much better without the mosses. Okay Matthias, we found somewhere out of the wind and I feel like this is the perfect time to ask you a bit more about what we're doing just while we're waiting for the coffee to boil to warm us up. Mm-hmm. Why have you brought us to this side of the lake?
1: This is uh, one of the long-term experiments that Ellen has been working on. So basically we're experimenting to see what the effect warming would have on, on the species here above the treeline. Specifically, we're interested in like the, the, the mosses and the shrubs, and how they will react on the warming. I think the, the, the purpose initially of the plots was to see if the shrubs or the mosses would grow, will benefit more of the warming. But since the plots have been going and there's been a lot of data in them, there's been some, uh, a lot of experiments after that going on as well.
0: So what we're doing today is putting up these kind of almost mini greenhouses, I would describe them. And those are designed to simulate the warming.
1: Yes, up here in the alpine region, they simulate one to two degrees. And down in the forest, they can go as high as four degrees. Wow. So they're basically just plexiglass panels that we put together in a hexagon. And it's an open air greenhouse. And the technical term we have for them is OTC, which is open top chamber.
0: Presumably it stops the reindeer grazing on them as well.
1: Mm, Not really. There's reindeer and rodent damage in plots often. But they're part of the ecosystem, so it doesn't matter too much. That's true. Unless you're doing some experiment when you're introducing something. Like there was a postdoc here who did seedling experiments when she put seedlings in the plots. Then it's not too nice if the rodents eat your seedlings, then you get no data. But otherwise they're part of the ecosystem, so it doesn't matter too much.
0: One of the things he's also doing while he's here is putting in soil and moisture temperature probes. Um, And one of the interesting things that he said, actually, as well, is that they're not actually using the data that they're collecting for this at the moment. They've been collecting it for about five years now. And the value in doing that is that, although they don't want it now, at some point somebody might be interested in it so they can have this back catalogue of data without having to start their experiment from the very beginning. And that's actually one of the things that's really fascinating about Arbisco because... It's been here for the station itself has been here for over 100 years and a lot of the climate monitoring that they've been doing has been continuously happening in the same spot for over 100 years. So we do have this real wealth of climate data, whereas in a lot of places where you set up a climate monitoring station or weather monitoring, they often have to be moved at some point or relocated because you know cities expand. But Arbisco is quite rare in having this, this long-term data set. Although the data is not being used now, it's still always really valuable to build up these long-term data sets because you never know who might be looking at things later and how valuable this period of time and the changes seen over this period of time might be to someone. Okay, after a very shaky boat crossing, we are back on dry land and we're back in Arbisco. So it's time for me to meet Ellen at the research station. So Ellen, first and foremost, the question
2: that I ask everyone, what does climate change research look like to you in particular? Uh, Well, that's a very good question. I am not a climate scientist. I do teach some climatology and meteorology for first year students, but uh, I'm a plant ecologist in background. Uh, So for me, climate change is, in my research, is about how climate and changes in climate actually affects processes in the ecosystem, like plant growth, so uptake of carbon, uptake of nutrients, interactions between different plants, interactions between plants and other components of the ecosystem, like microbes or soil fauna. Um, So it's all about the ecosystem processes and how climate impacts on that. Great,
0: and we're back. Uh, we've just spent the day installing the ROTCs on the other side of the, of the lake. Um, but you're looking at quite a lot of different things in this experiment, aren't you? Can you just run me through uh, what you're actually doing?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's quite a complex experiment. So you went to visit two of the sites, but there's eight sites in total. Blimey. Um, Yeah, and the reason for it is that um, here in Avisko, we have quite a strong precipitation gradient. So Avisko itself is the driest place in Sweden. We get about 300 millimeters of rain in a year. Oh, really? Yeah, but at the Norwegian border, which is sort of half an hour drive from here, we have three times as much precipitation. Oh, wow. Uh, And with this experiment, uh, what we wanted to do is look at the impact of climate warming on the tundra vegetation. But in particular, the interactions between mosses and other plant species in okay. in, the, in the tundra. And more specific, even like how do trees establish in the tundra? Because when it gets warmer, the expectation is that trees can establish higher up on the mountains and further north in the tundra. And so that the tundra or the alpine tundra would slowly change into a boreal forest.
0: Oh, right. OK. So that's why we were up
2: at the very top of the tree line. Exactly. Exactly. That's why the sites are at the top of the tree line um and we didn't want to have just one side to study this because then your results will in a way also only be applicable to this one spot mm-hmm. so we wanted to have multiple sites and then automatically because the tree line kinds of yeah it is a line it's not a three-dimensional thing in a way mm-hmm. we ended up needing to incorporate sites that have a higher or a lower precipitation because of this precipitation gradient between Abisko and the norwegian border so then we said well why don't we incorporate this because the expectation in climate change is also that precipitation is going to change it's not entirely sure in which direction but if we work along a precipitation gradient then we can actually also analyze how the interactions between climate warming and the mosses and the trees is impacted by how much precipitation there is okay so it's quite a complex experiment so we have Several different factors. We have this precipitation, so high and low precipitation. So we have four sites that are more in the low precipitation area. You went to two of those, mm. and then there's four that are in high precipitation area. And then at each site, we have three different foc- uh, moss species that are sort of our focus species. Okay. And for each of these moss species, we have installed a control plot where we don't do anything. And then we have an open-top chamber plot. So there we have this small chamber that you've seen, which increases the temperature. Yeah, our little kind of greenhouse friends. Exactly. So then we can compare how these three different mosses respond to the warming and if they do that differently. Um, And then on top of that, in in each of these plots, we have from one half of the plot removed the mosses and the other half is intact. And that allows us to see also how the impact of the mosses, um, yeah, how strong that is. Like we have for every moss a comparison, like how would it have been if there hadn't been any mosses?
0: And how long have you been running these particular experiments at these sites?
2: Uh, we started in 2011, so it's, the, it's eight years now.
0: Yeah. Was that long enough to start seeing the impacts?
2: Uh, For some things, yeah. For some some things went pretty fast. We started to measure uh, the growth of the mosses straight away. um, And quite soon we could see that, for example, the mosses, they grow faster when it's warmer. At least some some of the species. Uh, But they do this primarily when they have more precipitation. Mm. Because mosses, they cannot really regulate how much moisture they have. They don't have roots like most, yeah vascular plants which for most people would be like the normal plants that you see normal plants sure exactly so mosses they don't have roots so that they, they are completely depending on what comes from the precipitation from the rain or what they can absorb because there's maybe some water standing at the ground yeah so when there is higher precipitation would you like would you expect if it gets warmer so if you put an open top chamber on them yeah. They will evaporate more and lose more water. So they actually want to have access to to more water. So the fact that we found a stronger positive effect of the warming when there is more water available is kind of confirming what you would expect.
0: Yeah. Okay. And um, so what happened as well to the parts of the plot where you removed the moss?
2: Um, But we haven't been measuring so much there. Why we actually had that was because one of... Yeah, as I said, we were interested in knowing what happens with the tree line uh, when it gets warmer. Uh, and why we focus on the interactions between the mosses and the tree seedlings is because, you know, like the trees at the tree line, they cannot just uproot themselves and walk higher up on the mountain because it gets warmer. No. If a tree line moves further north or upwards on the mountain, it's because their seeds fall on the tundra and germinate there and establish So these seedlings, they they need to germinate, they need to uh, grow and survive and become big trees. And only then has the tree line actually moved. Um, And uh, the tundra is really dominated by mosses, different moss species. Um, So when the seeds fall, it's very likely that they end falling up on the moss layer and have to germinate there and survive there. So we wanted to simulate that this but then we wanted to know okay how important are the mosses as such and how does it differ between the moss species so that's why we have the three moss species they are very common species in the tundra and then we uh, have removed them to be able to compare if we plant seedlings in the mosses or where we have removed the mosses then we can see okay so if it gets warmer and the seedling would grow without the mosses it would maybe like have a positive response to the warming but when it's growing in the moss maybe the moss itself is also growing faster and actually the competition with the mosses becomes so tough that the seedling actually doesn't grow so well or doesn't survive
0: ah, i see so their interactions are actually really important as well yes there's so much more than it looks when you're you're first looking at these plots there's, there's so much more going on um, so what do we reckon to this area then? I know you're looking at lots of different sites, but if we're kind of talking just about the Arbusco area, um, if it is warming, are we going to see a movement of the tree line up if the mosses then can't survive?
2: Um, well, that's a good question. If the mosses can't survive, I think that we would see a rise of the tree line. Um, if the mosses are surviving, which maybe maybe they would, yeah Um, it could be a a limiting factor i think it will be a limiting factor yeah Ah. but there are really a lot of factors that work on the tree line so the simple idea of like okay it gets warmer then the tree line will go up or further north that it's not that simple like um, it's not only the mosses it's also um, the presence of herbivores partly the reindeer that are herded here but partly also just like wild animals rodents Um, insect outbreaks that have a huge impact on the location of the tree line.
0: And why are we so concerned with the tree line? And what's the importance of that movement or not movement uh, with regards to climate?
2: Well, the Arctic in general is really important for our climate and it has several reasons. And one of the reasons is that the Arctic is white or at least a large part of the year is white. And so it reflects a lot of the incoming radiation from the sun. And all that reflected radiation doesn't contribute to the warming of the of the atmosphere mm-hmm. so as long as the arctic is white because it is covered by ice or bec- by snow mm-hmm. um, it reflects a lot of this radiation but when it is not white anymore it doesn't do that and there's one big difference between the tundra and the boreal forest and that is that these big trees that we have in the boreal forest they stick through the snow and so what they even if there is snow lying on the ground or on some of the branches, if you look at it from above, a forest is always darker than a snow-covered tundra. Mm. Um, So the actual position of the tree line is really important for the amount of radiation that is reflected by the Arctic. And so in that sense, the position of the tree line is immediately important for the climate in the whole world.
0: Yes, so higher tree line, more trees less snow uh, is kind of bad news. It's funny actually, I've been talking to a lot of people up here and I think in general, a lot of people when they first think about climate change, one of their first thoughts is, okay, we need more trees, we need to sequester more carbon. But actually up here in the Arctic, that's not the case. We, We really don't want more trees in many cases.
2: No, that is true. And uh, yes, uh, more trees in general is quite often promoted as something which you can use for carbon sequestration. And I think in a lot of places that is true. But uh, one of the the points is when you go further north is that at the time when it's still snow covered, like in spring, April and, and, and May, Uh, the days are already really long. And so they get like a disproportional large amount of incoming radiation while they are snow covered. Mm. And if you then have trees, that takes away a lot of that reflection. Mm. Um, So it has to do with the interaction between the fact that tree growth is not super productive at high latitudes. So the amount of carbon that you gain uh, by having trees instead of tundra is not really, really high. With the fact that The distribution of the incoming radiation from the sun is not the same the whole year round, but it is um, in spring when when snow is still present until end of May or even longer in in higher up in the mountains. um, We get a lot of sun coming in because we already have like you know days that are maybe twenty hours long or twenty four hours even if you go further north. Yeah. Um, So that contributes really to to this problem yeah we cannot solve everything by planting trees unfortunately no not up here certainly not
0: is there anything you think that we can do to protect our species up here and maybe prevent this um expansion in tree cover too much
2: well i think it all comes down in the end to what we can do ourselves in general right to stop climate change we have to change our behavior
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, We both being kind of the everyday people and also the politicians and the policymakers. Definitely.
2: And there might be some technological helps on the way there, but I think we have to realise that we have to change quite a bit in our behaviour as well.
0: Sooner rather than later.
2: Yes. (laughs) Thanks for
0: listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it heaps more than I enjoyed the boat crossings. Uh, I went a particularly bright shade of green, according to my colleagues. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. And please do leave a comment or two to let us know what you think. I'll see you soon for another episode of Field Notes.